to uh, present to you one fine man in this church who is a very gifted teacher and preacher, and you haven't gotten to hear him for a while, and today is your day. All right, Nathan, come and present to us the gospel. (laughs) Thank you, Pastor. What a privilege and how wonderful that we have Pastor Bill and Pastor Dave as our pastors, and we have incredible elders, and that they would invite me to come up and speak today. You know, it's been 12 years since I arrived in Sioux Falls, and 12 years since I had that extraordinary year, the initial year here in Sioux Falls of getting to know people. I got to know some of you 12 years ago. Uh, An incredible year that year. Began to feel like I finally had a sense of home here in Sioux Falls. That was the year that I met this hot young professor named Dr. Stiegel. That was the year that a lot of good happened in my life. And that was also the year that I came to reckon with death for the first time. People had died before, obviously, and and I had been to some funerals before, but that was the year that I had a death of a person very close to me. Her name was Rachel. She was a friend of mine from Cincinnati, and it was an unthinkable death, one of those unthinkable deaths, kind of like the Vollmer family's death recently, where four of them die in a car accident, leaving only a college-aged daughter as an orphan. And and that kind of unthinkable loss uh, was what I had to face. When Rachel died, she was kayaking with friends and went over some uh, fairly serious rapids, and she was trapped underneath a rock. And it was unthinkable that no one saw her at first, and then when they did notice, they couldn't find her because she was trapped, and unthinkable that it took one, two, three minutes, then four, five, six minutes before they were able to find her body. They could only do so by dragging a rope across both sides of the river and trying to find until it snagged on a body, and finally pulled her out, and unthinkable that at that time that she had been under for over six minutes, And when everybody says that's when the body is shut down completely, and unthinkable that they decided to administer CPR on her for 45 minutes, and unthinkable that after 45 minutes she began breathing again. Uh, And she was taken to the hospital uh, by a helicopter and arrived there, and the doctor said it's really unthinkable that she'll ever live. Because even though she's barely alive right now, pneumonia is going to kick in for for certain and then she'll die. And so it was unthinkable that that she lived through the pneumonia. Uh, And then even more unthinkable that uh, her eyes opened. And the doctor said, well, her eyes have opened, but she's she's certainly not going to be responsive. And and she's not going to speak or write. So it was unthinkable when she began to make noises, then eventually write, and uh, eventually start speaking. And, And it was so unthinkable that the city of Cincinnati was clearly rattled. Our church was uh, experiencing revival. People were co- literally coming to Jesus uh, or uh, recommitting their lives because of this miracle. And so it was even more unthinkable when Rachel had recovered a good bit, all of a sudden began sinking backwards and eventually died. And, and that was the death that I had to reckon with. And that all of the normal platitudes that you hear at funerals didn't apply. All of the 
easy answers for why things happened just did not apply in that case. And I had to come, for the first time that year when I first arrived in Sioux Falls, how does God really feel about death and how do I respond to the unthinkable? It was also the the first year that I discovered John 11. I'm sure I had read it before, but it seemed to me to be a fresh text. Do you ever have those experiences? You're like, is this in the Bible? Really? And I'd ask you to turn there this morning. And I wish I had a lighter, funnier sermon for you, because I like preaching those. This is not one of them. This is a sermon for big boys and girls. (laughs) It's uh, rated mature. How do we respond to the unthinkable? The story goes like this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So last week we were introduced to Martha and Mary. These are sisters and their brother Lazarus. And they are close to Jesus. And we're not sure how they got so close to Jesus, but Jesus considers them friends. He loves them deeply. And uh, Martha and Mary have their respective problems and their respective strengths. And we can identify with with one or the other, or perhaps both. But here is where they come into the, the, the front of the picture in John's Gospel. This Mary and Martha are very concerned because their brother Lazarus is sick. And, and when, you, when somebody is sick like that and you send Jesus, what they're saying is Lazarus is going to die. I mean, he, he's on his deathbed that kind of sick. So, so go fetch Jesus because Jesus can heal him. We've seen Jesus heal lots of people. It's no problem for him, so go fetch Jesus. And so someone goes to Jesus and says, Lord, the one you love is sick. I mean, you must have loved Lazarus quite a bit when somebody just says, the one you love is sick. And Jesus knows who they're talking about. So verse 4, when, when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Wait, wait, hold on. Did I read that right? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. 
And, and, and this is where I want to pause and introduce this, that, that when we are confronted with death, we, we have natural responses. When you hear about someone dying, you will go through a whole range of emotions and you will have some kind of decision about how you're going to respond and process this. And I find it interesting that in this passage, there are lots of different responses to death. And, and it starts with the, the disciples' response, and then eventually we'll look at uh, Martha's response and Mary's response, and then eventually at Jesus' own response. Look at how the disciples respond to this news. Jesus has basically just told them, Lazarus is dead. Verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. The first kind of response that we see here from the disciples is denial. It's not a willful denial. You might say it was a mistake, but, but, and you can even understand why it would be a mistake, because Jesus, after all, is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. They believe this. They've seen him exert power, and they know that he loves Lazarus. And so if you have an all-powerful person who is all-loving towards this person, Lazarus, then Lazarus can't be dead. He can't possibly be dead, because Jesus would never let that happen, right? And don't we say the same things to ourselves, either subtly or very profoundly? We say, God would never let that happen. No, 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 no. That person isn't going to die. No, no, that, that, that's just impossible. That can't happen. And there's a, there's a philosophical problem that goes along with this. Philosophers and theologians talk about this as a specific problem. It's called the problem of evil. And it says, to simplify it, if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then evil cannot exist. But if you affirm God is all-powerful and God is all-good and evil exists, then one of them has to be false, according to this problem. Because if God is all-powerful and all-good, he would never let evil exist. But if evil exists, he must not be all-powerful or all-good. You've heard this in some way, either casually or formally, right? Others will call this a a theodicy. You have to give an answer for God, a reason for for God, the way that he is with the real existence of evil. And you see this just a little bit with the disciples. They're in denial that there could possibly be a problem with Lazarus. And besides, they're concerned about the political situation. It's kind of tense. They're afraid that Jesus and the others might be stoned if they go back there into the nest of the Pharisees. But check out this response. After Jesus says plainly, Lazarus is dead. Let me spell it out for you. D-E-A-D, dead. Verse 16, Thomas does a different response. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. This is, this is a difficult kind of cryptic uh, response. But I, I think what Thomas is saying is, look, Jesus is going back to Jerusalem. They're going to kill him. So now Lazarus will be dead and Jesus will be dead. But let's go with Jesus because, you know, he is our leader. 
And, you know, you just got to buck up sometimes and do the right thing, and you got to die because, uh, you know, death happens. This is the resignation response. If you're not a denier, then, then at some point you will get to a point of resignation. You will say things like, well, you know, sometimes you just got to do the right thing, and perhaps that will result in death. Or perhaps, you know, that's just the way life is. Death happens. It sucks, but death happens. You know, or maybe you spiritualize it a little bit more and you watch Disney movies and you start singing the circle, circle of life, you know, and, and, and it's really easy to do that, you know, when Elton John is singing it, you know, and all the birds are flying around and you see the panorama of the savannah, you know, it's not so easy though, you know, when, when uh, the, the evil lion throws the other lion off the cliff and it's not like Simba's daddy's falling to his doom and they're going, circle, circle of life. No, they're never playing at that. The protagonist is about to die. Right? But we do this. We're resigned. We, we, we become stoic. We just say things like, death is natural. Everybody's got to die sometime. And Thomas is more or less saying that Jesus is going to go back to, to Jerusalem. We should go with him and just take it, you know. We've got to die. We've got to die because everybody's got to die sometime. So goes the disciples' reactions to death. But let's pick up the story in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. You know, and we can knock Mary, Martha, sometimes for, for being too busy and being distracted, as she was in the sermon last week. But Martha has perhaps the best profession in the entire Bible, the best confession ever. You know, in the, in the face of death, in the face of this incredible loss, she says, first of all, I know that God will do whatever you ask him to do. And then she says, yeah, I, I believe that he'll be raised, Lazarus will be raised at, at the last day. And then she gives this incredible declaration of who Jesus Christ is. She says, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Man, Martha is my hero. I mean, if I have to put up words on my wall to say what I believe, why not just do that right there? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. That's what I believe. 
And I would suggest to you that Martha's response to death is actually a fantastic response. Her response is confession. What I mean by that is that you confess who God is. That when death hits your family, your neighborhood, your city, that what you do is you begin declaring things that are greater than death. You say, God, you are good. You are the creator of heaven and earth, and you are the redeemer. Lord God, you are the one who controls all things. And Jesus, I know that whatever you ask the Father right now will be poured out, because you have authority over all things, even death. That you begin confessing the goodness of God and the might of God and the wisdom of God. And you begin confessing who Jesus Christ is because that is the truth. Death is not the final truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, and he says this in response to a fantastic confession too. Martha knows her doctrine. She says, I believe in the resurrection. That's a fantastic hope to hold on to. When people die... I would suggest to you, instead of saying, well, they're in a better place right now, instead, go, go, go to the, the final hope, not just the intermediate hope, but the, the final hope, which is, they'll be raised from the dead. It's okay that they've died. It's not, it's, not, it's not the last word. Start confessing that. But Jesus just bends it a little bit and says, good, affirm the doctrine, but I am the resurrection and the life. Confess me, and that's exactly what Martha does. Confession is a proper response to death if you are a Christian. And then we have another saint here who gives a profound type of response. Mary's, and you see this in verse 28, after she had said this, Martha went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Period. Mary's response is not as profound as Martha's. She does not go on to make affirmations of Jesus, declaring doctrine, asserting the the, the utter messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth. She says none of these things. She just simply says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Martha said that too. Clearly, that's what everybody was saying. If Jesus had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Martha says this, but goes on to confess. Mary just sticks it. That's it. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what Mary is saying is so much of what we say to God. That one question we ask of God when when these horrible, unthinkable tragedies hit, we ask, why? Why? Why God? You know, and, and there is a type of arrogant asking of why, which is, um, you know, claiming your rights and saying, God, you had no right to do this. You had no right to take away this person. Why? But that is not what Mary 
is asking here. That is not what Christians are to ask of the living God. She rather makes a statement that places the situation in Jesus' face. There at His feet, she said, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. And it's true. If Jesus had been there at the rapids, Rachel would not have died. If Jesus was there, the Volmers would not have skidded off the road. If Jesus was there at the deathbed of somebody who was 95 years old, that person would not have died. They would have gotten up from their deathbed. Because Jesus' will is to bring life because He is the resurrection and the life. And this is difficult to articulate, so I want you to hear me closely and carefully. There is such a thing for Christians as a holy protest. What Mary does here is a holy protest. It is the very same thing that Job does before God. It is the very same thing that Kohelet in Ecclesiastes does. It is the same thing that Jeremiah the prophet does. In a very pointed way, says, God, you are great and you are good, but why? I request an answer. Because what I see in front of me is not your will. It's not what you say you want. It is not part of the covenant promises. It is not part of your created, created plan. It is not part of the redemptive scope of history. What I see in front of me is death. And you don't like death. And I know that because that's what you've said. And so here it is. Here it is in front of you. And I am not taking away any of your glory. I believe in you and I love you and I adore you. And I rest on you fully. But this should not be the case. If you were here, this person wouldn't have died. A holy protest. And I would suggest to you that Christians may do that very thing. Not just confess God's goodness and confess the promises of God and to confess His own nature, but in fact to protest as those who are believers in God. as the only one to whom they can go. So much for Martha's answer and Mary's answer. And it's certainly a better response than, than the twelve disciples. But what about Jesus' response? How does Jesus respond to death? Verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This is the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. What is His response to death? When He's actually there and He sees the death, and he sees the people who are grieving. What is his response? He is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
You go back and you look at the Greek terms behind that and you find these are terms that speak of great agitation and anger. Even simmering rage is used to describe horses, even. Uh, wild and, and, and angry and worked up. Moved in spirit and troubled. That is to, to say simply, maybe oversimplifying it, Jesus is angry. You know, and, and Bible scholars along the way have been deeply troubled by Jesus being deeply troubled. <laughs> and they say, why is Jesus so deeply troubled? And they come up with a, a good spiritual answer. They say uh, you know, things like, well, Jesus was upset at the lack of faith you know, there, that people just didn't trust him to raise Lazarus from the dead. But you know what? I, I don't see it. I, I just don't see it in the text. People are exerting faith left and right. They believe in Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. So, so what is Jesus so deeply troubled over? It appears the obvious thing is Jesus is troubled at death. He is angry. He is full of rage at this moment because he agrees with Mary. This should not be the case. There is a wrong here. There is an indignity here. That is to say, Jesus hates death. And when you look through the Scriptures, I believe you will find that very thing. The book of Revelation says that that the last enemy to be thrown into the lake of fire is death itself. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about God putting death to death. God apparently hates death. God does not show up at a funeral and simply say, well, it just happens, it's natural, I guess. I'll make good come from it. Verse 34. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in Him. Jesus is angry, but we also see here 
Oh boy, and I feel much more comfortable saying this because it's nice and spiritual and it just sort of, it sort of flows. Because God has a plan. God has a plan for your suffering. Praise Jesus. All, all of your suffering comes together and He has planned all of this out to work good for you. Nothing can take away the blessing God has for you. And He will even use your suffering to bring about good things. He will use your tragedies in life to bring about belief. In your darkness, God's light will shine bright. Amen? And, and we see this throughout the passage. Verse 4. It is for God's glory, this death, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Verse 15. For your you disciples, for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. And that's how the passage ends here in, in, in verse 45. When people saw what Jesus did, they believed in Him. Why does Jesus let Lazarus die? Why does He tarry for two more days? Why does He let Lazarus sit there in the grave for four days, which is long beyond any kind of period of when you know somebody's dead, dead, dead. Why does He do all of this? Because He knows that when He raises Lazarus from the dead, people will come to believe. And I have seen this. I have seen the blessings get poured out in the midst of tragedy. People come to know Christ. People clean up their lives. They get free from addictions. They, stay, they are set free. They are put on a new trajectory. Good things come out of tragic situations because God is there. Because God does show up at that point. And praise Jesus for that. All of these things are working together for your good and for His good too because He gets the glory. And yet... Isn't it funny that Jesus does not justify all of this? All of this suffering. Isn't it funny that, that He doesn't just sort of walk in there stoically? Because you might expect that from somebody who knows, who, who, He's the very one who set the plan. He's the one who knows God's purposes and He knows that He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. You've you got to think, Jesus would just simply be cool as a cucumber. Don't worry, everyone. I got it under control. Open up. Lazarus, come out. But you think that's how it would go. Because we are talking about the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Not so. Verse 35. Jesus wept. You know, if you're looking for an easy memory verse, there you have it. But I'm not kidding. What a great memory verse. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus wept? Jesus wept. Jesus, even though He had the plan, even though the, He had the authority, He wept. Why was He weeping? Just in case we missed it. Verse 38. Jesus once more deeply moved. Jesus is a wreck. He apparently is bawling, he is collapsing, he is stumbling to the tomb. This is a very strange response for somebody who was about to undo all of this death. Jesus is grieving because that is what you do at death. Because for all of the redemption that Jesus is going to bring to this situation does not undo the fact that there has been immense suffering. 
Just because Jesus Christ is going to bring about good from this loss doesn't mean that the loss isn't loss. Do you hear what I'm saying? When God makes something good out of your evil, He is not overlooking the evil. You might say God is recording every single loss. Jesus wept. We think sometimes that God is impassive, has no feelings. He just sort of comes up with a plan and then executes it. Our God is emotional because He knows the kind of loss that's involved in this situation. What is God's final response to death, though? Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And I think what some of you need to hear today, uh, more than anything else, is that God will restore the years that the locust has eaten. God simply won't give you something different. You won't lose one thing and get something different. You will not let the things that are lost remain lost. Um, The early church... They were uh, grappling with what this meant for for Jesus to be raised from the dead and and what it meant for believers to be raised from the dead. And the amazing thing is that almost without exception, the early church in the the second and third centuries and even beyond said that when God raises us from the dead, he will actually reassemble every little bit of our body and put it back together so that our flesh will be resurrected. Not just a body, not just a resurrection body, but that the actual pieces, so if you get your finger cut off, for example, God will reattach that finger and restore it. You know, if you lose some skin cells here and there, God will actually bring it all back together, and that will be the body that is raised. And we kind of go, that's, that's, that's weird. That's going to give me nightmares. <laughs> But you know, the more I think about it, the more it makes sense to me. First of all, God can do it. He created our bodies in the first place. Why can't he put it all back together and make it perfect and symmetrical and beautiful and immortal? Why not? But it's it's not just that. What, What makes sense to me is this, and I think this is what the early church was getting at. God does not allow loss. He's not... He's not saying there has to be evil and there has to be death and so, oops, that body just got destroyed, but I'll give you a new body. God will, in fact, restore everything that has been lost. Everything. And so whether it seems like a horrible indignity, a loss of a child, or whether it's somebody cut down in in the, the... prime of life, or whether it is somebody who is dying in a nursing home at age 99, it doesn't matter. God will restore it all. 
The disciples' response is understandable, but it's wrong. We cannot respond with denial or resignation to death. Martha and Mary are in the right track. You respond with confession, and you respond with a holy protest. But Jesus is the one who holds the true answer, and his response is the, the, the true response to the unthinkable. That he, in fact, will get angry. He, in fact, will grieve. But he sets up a plan, he executes it, and, in fact, restores all in the end. But here's the amazing thing. If you look at the end of this passage, Jesus has done all of this, and from this point, from rolling away the stone and calling out Lazarus, you know where he goes next? To his death. If you think God is sitting on the sidelines, just making a plan and bringing it to completion independently of any kind of suffering, you are wrong. You are sorely wrong. God works with this evil. God works with death. But He does not give death honor. Quite the contrary. And God works with this evil and God deals with this in His plan, but He is not standing by as an observer. He gets in the middle of it. And He throws Himself into the mouth of death. That's the God we serve. Pastor Bill. Well, Nathan Hitchcock. an amazing message and a very gripping one. I've heard you preach a number of times and for me that was your hallmark message that's hit my ears. So thank you very much. Now the reality is that there is a message inside of that message that needs to grip every one of us. And it was profoundly packaged today but that message is the message of Christ. I am the resurrection, and the life. And like Nathan, I cannot know what you have lost, what kind of loss you have experienced over your life. I can't know and understand or begin to relate to your level of grief, what you have experienced and what has, has hit you in your short or lengthy lifetime. And that is not the issue here. The reality is the message of hope that Nathan brought to you as he closed this message out today, and that is that God will restore. God will restore all to you. And I would challenge you today that you let us speak to you for just a moment and give you an opportunity to touch that God here in a very tangible way through prayer and, and lay that heart of 
of loss or, or sorrow or grief or whatever before him today because you can know this Jesus. You can know him today. The restorer is here to touch you and to change you and to give you this life eternal, this resurrection hope planted inside of you today. So I'm going to ask those who are on our prayer team and our elders to come and stand at various places across the front of the room. And in the next few moments, we would like to give you a chance to receive this Jesus. And you say, I know this Jesus, but I also know this kind of loss and hurt and grief in my heart. Then we will give you a chance to allow someone else to stand with you and pray with you to this Jesus who is the restorer. If you don't know him, this is your day to know him. This is your day to understand, receive resurrection power by accepting this Jesus. And if you know him today, you can be ministered to and you can be, be helped today through the power of prayer as you are brought once again to this Jesus, the Restorer. This is your opportunity. We invite you to come. If you feel the liberty and the freedom to, to dismiss yourself, you can do that and go out in the other room and fellowship. But what an amazing message today. What an amazing revelation that God has given us today of redemption. And so I give you this opportunity as your pastor to come and to receive prayer and to be ministered to. Let me, let me conclude by praying for you for a moment and open this time up for you to come in the name of Jesus. Would you bow your heads? Spirit of the living God, would you fall upon every one of us in this room right now? This is an amazing revelation that you have given to us today. On some level, we've all known some of it, but I just feel a greater sense of understanding and a greater sense of, of just being connected to you and of your love and of your care and of your power and of your authority, above all, your redemption through the resurrection. Jesus, thank you for what you have done. Father, thank you for your plan. Holy Spirit, thank you for the revelation today, fresh, vibrant, profound. Would you let every person in this room feel that, that you are wanting them to feel, and may by your Spirit draw them to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen you need prayer, come and be prayed for. If you just need to spend some time praying, feel free to do that. You are free to be dismissed if you need to be. In Jesus' name, amen.